And in many of our cities that are ran by political parties of, uh, that are on the left, the students are underperforming. When I consider even Wake County, um, where I live, uh, 78% of black students grades third through eighth grade are not proficient in math. Hey, Joyful Warriors. Welcome to the Joyful Warrior podcast. I'm Tiffany Justice, your host. And today we are joined by a fellow Joyful Warrior and dad, John Emanchukwu. And John is an author. He's, as I said, a father, a preacher. Um, and uh, as of recently, uh, speaking at a lot of school board meetings, a truth teller at the school district office. And so I'm going to play a video because I want everybody to get a sense of John for a second, speaking at a school board meeting, and then we're gonna learn a little bit more about him. Your long last name is Amanchukwu, it means I know God. And I'm glad to say that I do. I'm here today to talk about uh, this book here. My name is John Amanchukwu, as I stated earlier. It's called, It's Perfectly Normal for Students 10 and Up. This book details all kinds of sexual images, pictures of elderly people nude, pictures of an individual who's in a wheelchair with his penis out. All of these sexual pornographic images are made available and placed at the fingertips of children. And I'm sure Dr. Cruz, I don't know if you knew about this before you signed on, but hopefully this is something that you can address and deal with because this is immoral and asinine to allow children to be able to see this. Also, this book even shows images of two women having sex, a man and a woman having sex, and two men having sex. That's not perfectly normal. Who decides what's normal? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Or do parents decide what should be placed at the fingertips and allowed to be taught to their children in the school system. I'll read some of this for you. It says, after a bit, a person's vagina becomes moist and slippery and the clitoris becomes hard. After a bit, a person's penis, penis becomes erect, stiff and larger. Pastor. Sometimes a bit of clear Pastor. fluid that may contain two sperm comes out of the tip of the penis and makes Pastor. it wet. Can we, sir, I'm sorry. I, is there, did I, was it something I said? Was it something I said? If you don't want to hear it in a school board meeting, why should children be able to check it out of the school system? You see, we have perverts that are perverting our kids. And you all sit back smug in your chairs and celebrate diversity equity and inclusion, but you don't want me to read it so you can hear it. Why? Does it bother you? Yes or no? You can't answer that question. You want to know why? Because politically speaking, you can't say that it's wrong. You probably are a Christian man, but many Christians today have become more Democrat than Christian. Some Republicans have become more Republican than Christian. I'm not trying to win an election. I don't get my talking points from the RNC or the DNC. I get my talking points from the B-I-B-L-E, from the Bible. And you don't want me to read the filth because it exposes the truth. How dare you tell me to stop reading it? If you don't want to hear it, why should the children have to see it? Pastor, your time is, is, the time is up. Thank you. That makes two of us. So many times we have been watching parents come and speak in front of school boards, asking them, why are our children not learning to read? Why is the math proficiency where it is? Why are you exposing our children to content? Why are you blurring the boundary between school and home, keeping secrets from us, telling our children that home is not safe? And we have been shut down, our mics turned off every single time. 
And I think what you said about the fact you don't get your talking points from the DNC or the RNC is true for us at Moms for Liberty. I have said before, Tina's going to die because I'm going to say it now, but we don't have a pimp. Nobody gets to tell us what to do when they give us money in this organization. We're not a top-down organization. This is about giving power to the parents to defend their children. So well done, John. Thank you for joining us today. And what led you to that moment? Well, Tiffany, thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, first and foremost, I'm a, a Christian. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a father. Um, I'm a youth pastor. I care about children. I'm a taxpayer in North Carolina. And wherever my tax dollars go, my input and opinion goes as well. And so I went to the Asheville School Board meeting to address this book, you know, that's allowed in that school system. And there are several other books that are allowed in that school system that I didn't get, have time to address. But it was very shocking to see what happened when I actually read the material that that school board allows in the school system. And if they don't want it read aloud in a school board meeting, why are we giving access to children to have these books in our libraries? What's really happening is um, there's this false triune idol of diversity, inclusion, and equity. I call it D-I-E instead of D-E-I, because where there is D-I-E, there is death. And diversity, inclusion, and equity is something that many people are being forced to bow to. And if you don't bow to D-I-E, they will bludgeon you, they will cancel you. They will label you as a bigot, as a homophobe. I'm oftentimes labeled as an Uncle Tom because I speak out against critical race theory. I receive tons of hateful emails and messages and text messages as it relates to my stand. But at the end of the day, you can't cancel me because I've already been canceled. I know who I'm working for. I know who I'm serving. I know what the focus should be. And so just to see their response to their material that they have signed off on is really telling. What that school board leader did is that he handed me a gift. He made it obvious and evident for America to see that even the adults don't want to hear what's in these books. They really don't. John, uh, Tina and I, the co-founder of Moms for Liberty, we've tried to go on as many media outlets as we can to talk about this issue because it's been a really disingenuous conversation that America has heard. You know, they say, oh, it's To Kill a Mockingbird, or it's 1984, or it's, you know, they try to come up with all of these other books, and you're mm -hmm. right, what's in the books is mm -hmm. shocking. This book is gay, genderqueer, some of these yes. books, the, the, yes. the, um, th this is not, this isn't sexual education. No. This isn't something that our children desperately need to do well in school, uh, that's but right. that's the lie that, that Americans are being told. Um, so I applaud you for having the bravery to really go out there and to show the, the school board and the adults what's happening and to kind of put them on the line. Because, you know, John, there it's been hard for dads, I think. I think COVID, I'm just going to be honest, COVID put a lot of families into a really hard economic position. I think a lot of moms um, stayed home when they could or quit their jobs to be able to try to help their kids with school and families made a lot of sacrifices. But the idea of dads coming out and speaking, and, and you know, I was just sharing with you, I just listened to FBI whistleblowers this morning who came forward and told the truth about what was happening within their positions, and they were suspended, and, and they weren't able to support their families. I think there are a lot of men that are very concerned right now. And yeah. so, you know, just, I, I want to talk about the book that you've written and the different work that you do, um, and speaking across the United States and breathing courage, but let's just talk to dads for a second like, we need you. I mean, it is powerful to have a man go up in front of the school board and read that uh, to other men and to, to really make them have to defend their position. Well, you know, I believe that so goes the father, so goes the home. God gave us all roles in the family. Father has a role, the mother has a role, and the child has a role as well. But our dads today, our fathers, our men have become neutered. Let's be honest, Timothy. Uh, many of our dads are, are neutered. They've been chewed up and spat out by feminists. If they're too assertive and bold and courageous, they're labeled as having toxic masculinity. If they are, you know, more, more reserved and quiet, you know, and they don't speak up, 
they're labeled as being a beta, you know? And so men are in this uh, perplexed position of not knowing what to do. And part of what I'm doing is, uh, number one, I'm trying to um, awaken the faith community, the Christian community, and I'm also trying to awaken fathers. I want fathers to stand in their rightful place and use their voice. There is nothing more impactful. There's nothing more eye-opening than a man full of courage and testosterone speaking at these school board meetings and being in the game and not just leaving this up to the mama bears. No, we can't just surrender this battle of men trying to rob women of their identity. We can't surrender that to women. If there's anyone that should be speaking up about the sanctity of womanhood, it ought to be a man. The Bible says that the glory of the man is the woman. It's the woman. But today, men are robbing women of their glory. And so, men, if you listen to this, if you're if you're if you're a wife and you you and you're married, of course, send this to your husband. Let him hear this part. Put this on repeat. Listen, Dad, you must stand in the gap. I'm thankful for Moms for Liberty and what they're doing, but men, we need to stand up. We need to be alongside Moms for Liberty. We cannot allow Tiffany and Tina to go at this by themselves. Yes, they have an army of women in this country who are standing boldly. These mama bears can take a licking and keep on ticking. These mama bears will take a hit and keep on fighting. If you run over them, they'll come back the next day. They are not afraid to stand for what is right. But men, we need you. We need you now. We need you present. We need you active at these school board meetings. You can't take the position that, you know, if I don't know it about it, then I'm not going to speak up about it, you know, out of sight, out of mind. No, that's not the role of a father or a dad. Men are called to protect. We are the protectors. God gave that to us. And not only do we protect our families at home, but we protect our families at school. We make sure that people are not sexualizing our children at a young age. Much of this content, here's another book. It says, all boys aren't blue. That's another one. You know, because oftentimes people want to say that we want to ban books. That's not our role. We're not on this quest to just ban curriculum materials, but we do want to get rid of the poison and the filth. Here's another book. It's called Queer. Queer, the ultimate LGBT guide for teens. There's another book that's in the public school system in America. Here's another one. It feels good to be yourself, a book about gender identity. Okay, that's another book. Here's another one. When Aiden became a brother. Okay, and you see there they put the rainbow flag on, I guess, Aiden. And for many people who don't know, the rainbow flag is only a colorful expression of Kama Sutra. That's what it is. It's a colorful expression of Kama Sutra. It only points out the sexual activities that the community does. And here's the thing. There was a time, Tiffany, where we believe that what a person does at home is up to them and it's no one else's business. And we should um, leave people alone and let them do what they want to do at home, you know, but that quickly transitioned from what took place at home to some of the people, some of those people trying to commandeer bathrooms to now commandeering classrooms and hijacking our libraries. I can't move away from this point. Dad, we need you. We need strong men who are in the game on the front lines doing the heavy lifting alongside our precious mama bear. Thank you for that, John. I really appreciate it. I'll yeah. be honest with you. I sat on a school board. It made a difference when a dad came up. Um, yes. You know, you get as on school boards, you see a lot of moms. Moms are normally there kind of shepherding their children through that educational experience. Um, but when you have dads that get involved, their voices really matter. And, and it is yeah. the time now in this country where dads have to stand up. Yes. We absolutely need fathers and mothers standing together uh, to fight back. So, yes. John, what does it do to a child 
at the age of five to be told in the classroom that maybe they were born in the wrong body? Does God make mistakes like that? Well, God doesn't make mistakes. You know, even Jesus, when he came to earth, he the Bible says there was no gal or sin found in his mouth. Mouth. He walked upon the earth for 33 and a half years. He was 100% human and 100% God, but he never sinned. And so God didn't make uh, mistakes when he came to earth, and he didn't make mistakes when he created the earth. And so God, when even, even when he created man and made man in his own image and allowed man to be scooped up from the ground and God um, blew his breath into the, to the clay and the clay turned into a human life and a human soul. God never makes mistakes. But here's the issue. There are people who want acceptance. And today, if you don't agree with an individual, they say you don't accept them. And here's the thing. I can love a person but disagree with their behavior and their lifestyle. I don't think a child should be confused when they go to school. Why are we putting these materials before kids in the name of inclusion? Because, you know, when a child goes to a library, they need to be able to see themselves on the shelf. That's what the librarians say. They need to see themselves on the shelf. Wait, on the shelf. Wait a minute. Why do they need to see lesbianism on a shelf? In school. Uh, my well, and, and so, you know, at Moms for Liberty, we have a lot of different members with different backgrounds and belief systems. Some are religious, some are not. We have gay members. We have members who have gay children. And so we are, are truly a parental rights organization in that if you have children, you are the parent. You have the right to direct the upbringing of that child. The concern has become in these classrooms that there are things being introduced to these very young children, concepts sexualizing these children at a time in their lives when they're not sexual beings. And so this sexualization of children that's happening is so overt, right? And it's so antithetical to the teaching in many parents' homes. What do we do as parents as we tackle that? So if you're a religious person, if you have faith in your life, if you're not, if you're a parent that's just concerned about it, some advice about engaging, if this is happening in your children's classroom, how, how would you approach that as a father? Well, first and foremost, we must be able to define, to define what is perfectly normal and what is perfectly perverted. <laughs> we, we, we have to find this baseline. Who defines what's normal? Is it our school boards? Or is there some greater overarching truth that we should espouse to? You know, and that's why when you go back to the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, and the 60s, when we had the Ten Commandments in the public school system, and when there was a moral standard for education, many of these things didn't take place. But today, the standard is based upon the emotions and the ideologies of people who are woke and those who support diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in their mind, it's perfectly normal to talk to a five-year-old about transgenderism. It's perfectly normal. And you and can't- also Yeah, and also incredibly destabilizing. As parents, we know yeah. incredibly destabilizing. So you've got this teaching happening in the classroom. Some mm -hmm. children are being taught that they might be a girl today, they could be a boy tomorrow, they could be a tree the next day, right? It's fluid. And, and so that's being taught and introduced as part of comprehensive sexuality education, which many states across the United States are adopting as their primary uh, curriculum that they're using in framework for sexuality education in their school district. Um, it seems to be taking up an enormous amount of the school day, to be honest, which is a little, you know, shocking, especially considering where reading is, we're going to get there. But- right. I saw someone post, and I think I've mentioned this on another podcast, but I want to mention, I saw someone posting um, a parody account on Twitter, and they said, um, I've been introducing my children, it was during Easter, they said, I've been introducing my children to Jesus Christ all week long in the classroom. Uh, they really loved the fact that he rose from the dead. It was very exciting to them. They're getting very interested. I've even baptized some of the children in the classroom sink. I hope that their parents don't mind or don't find out about it. And it was a joke. It wasn't true. It was someone making fun. But can you imagine 
if that was happening. And I really think that would be the true other response, right? You know, you're teaching our children something completely antithetical to my faith if I'm Muslim, if I'm Jewish, if I'm Christian. Gender identity is not something that is embraced. And so so the other side of it, right? But that's not happening in the schools, is it? Their children are not being introduced to religion in the schools. So we have this real you know, it's everything's off balance. You're so right about that. If they were being taught the Ten Commandments and people were teaching about Romans chapter one that speaks to many of these different lifestyles, uh, parents would be alarmed and upset. You know, uh, I believe it was in, 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 in Loudoun County that they called parents, um, what, domestic terrorists? Merrick Garland did that. Just, Im- just imagine what they would call parents if, uh, I mean, what, what they would call teachers, you know, if they, if they were teaching Christianity and the tenets of the faith. Um, what we're seeing today is clear. There is an attack on Christianity. There, there, there really is, you know. Um, after the, the killing that took place and the mass shooting at the, 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 the Christian school in Tennessee, the, uh, the Biden administration came out and said that they stand with the trans community. And there was so much conversation that was being held saying that the trans community is under attack. And I disagree with that. The trans community is not under attack. Christians are under attack. Truth is under attack. Normative behaviors are under attack. And so we must do all that we can. The work that you're doing through Moms for Liberty, the work that I'm doing through the um, Erased Project, going to school boards, going and speaking at Congress like you did. I mean, that takes courage. That takes boldness. And to contend with all of the hate mail and all of the evil things that people say as a result of it. Listen, God has a great reward for you. I just feel so led to encourage you in what you're doing. You will be rewarded greatly for what you're doing. You know, you may not feel it and see it down here, but there is a reward in heaven. And for those of you who agree like us, that at the end of the day, we should not push these things on children in schools. We need you to come alongside us. It's time for us to stop sitting on the fence and being on the sideline and sitting in the bleachers, it's time to get in the stadium. we got to get in the game and make sure that our voice is being heard. We say it's time to get off the comfy couch. And I'll just tell you, John, I am being rewarded in life now because my children are watching me (laughs) and they are proud of me and they're proud of what I do. And I was in a conversation with some family members at an event And one of my siblings was talking about something and asking questions. And it was my daughter, who's a teenager graduating from high school, who really came and not to my defense, I wasn't being attacked, but, you know, alongside me and said, have you seen some of this stuff? And, you know, what, this isn't right. And this is a kid who, you know, really has been all over the political spectrum growing up. And my husband and I try to just give them a solid foundation and, and the ability to ask questions. And we don't try to push things on them because we believe that, what's good and right and true, if presented in a way that is um, that you meet people where they are, they will come alongside you. Um, and so with our children, we've tried to do that. And so I, I see it all the time that my kids are watching, they see what's happening, and they're going to know that um, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And uh, hopefully we're instilling those qualities in them. So thank you for that. Um, let's talk about erased. Let's talk about critical race theory. Uh, yeah. Tell us about the book that you wrote and and a little bit about some of your thoughts about where we are as far as race is concerned in the United States right now in 2023. Yeah, so this is the book here, Erased, Uncovering the Lives of Critical Race Theory and Abortion. The concept and the idea of this book came while I was working and serving at an abortion clinic. Our church had adopted this clinic and we had been working there trying to Save babies for the past 10 years, but we've thrown countless baby showers and we paid for daycare. We purchased family car- families' cars and food and all of these different things. We care about life from the womb to the tomb. And so we love mothers. We support mo- mothers. We get in the ditch with mothers. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus. We support in so many ways. It's unbelievable. But I was encountered by a black father who, who said to me, why are you out here fighting a white man's issue? Now, I was perplexed when he said that at the abortion clinic during the summer of 2020, 
because the majority of the people outside of the clinic trying to save the babies were white. But nearly 80 to 85 percent of the moms in the clinic were black. But this guy is going to say that I'm fighting a white man's issue. What that told me in the moment is, is this, that if I were to ask him what the definition of critical race theory was, he probably wouldn't know. But he was he, he was a walking poster child for all things CRT, because in CRT, they see racism in all things and at all times, even when a man that looks like him is just trying to save babies of all colors and creeds. And so from that point, you know, I came up with a plan to combat the racist tentacles of the foundation of the abortion movement, but also with critical race theory. To me, critical race theory is the Jim Crow era in reverse. Blacks are now to, trying to do to whites what was done to them. And so when you consider the Jim Crow era, what took place? Blacks were told that they couldn't sit at countertops with whites. They were told that they couldn't go to schools, school with whites. They were told that they had to go to the back of a restaurant to eat. They couldn't drink at the same water fountains as whites. But today, conversely, uh, many people are labeling, labeling whites as inherently racist because of the color of their skin. And so in order for critical race theory, which is essentially cultural Marxism, in order for cultural Marxism to thrive, there must be division and racial tension. There must be this uh, duality or dichotomy of uh, the oppressed versus the oppressors, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. It's the vax versus the unvaxed. It's the LGBTQ community versus those who are straight. It's whites versus blacks. It's the rich versus the poor. So on and so forth. There's so much division that is being pushed. And in order to bring about true Marxism, they have to find ways to turn blacks against whites. I tell people everywhere I go that critical race theory and the intent thereof is not solely to turn blacks against whites in general but it's being pushed to turn blacks against white Republicans in particular, because there are some viewpoints that many white liberals don't want blacks to know and or support like school choice. They want to keep the stronghold on education and keep blacks on the proverbial liberal plantation and not let them see that, you know, when you juxtapose where we are today in comparison to the the 50s and the 60s, and the 50s and the 60s, blacks were locked out of the public school system. But today we're trapped in. And in many of our cities that are ran by political parties of, uh, that are on the left, the students are underperforming. When I consider even Wake County, um, where I live, 78% uh, of black students grades third through eighth grade are not proficient in math. Say that again. Mm -hmm. Just say it again. In grades three through eighth grade, only 22% are proficient in math and only 34% are proficient in reading. And so when we talk about this focus on equity and equity and equity, everywhere we turn, there's some teaching or training on racial consciousness and equity and to me, equity is the transmission of a disease called communism. You take from the uh, un unproductive person, you know, and you give to, we, you take from the productive person and you give to the unproductive person. And so equity is something that is damaging even our test scores. They have dumbed down the test scores to make it more easy for students to pass, but they're not even reaching their benchmarks. And so all around this country, we are seeing a constant trend of underperformance and students who are not reading or doing math on grade level, but there's so much emphasis on diversity, inclusion, and equity, and all of these other woke ideologies. I remember I was sitting with a young lady who was considering running for school board. She was very smart, very nice uh, young lady. Um, and I think her... Um, her, her intentions were good. She said, we just need to make the school system operate without the parents. We just need to make it so that we, the school system just works whether the parents are involved or not. And I looked at her and I said, no, 
That is not the way forward. She said, well, but there are a lot of kids who don't have parents that are involved in their children's lives. And so we need to make it work for them. And I said, that doesn't mean you set up a system where the parents are not a part of the success of the students. Parents are the number one driver of student success. We should be doing everything we can to get those parents and you know bring them back into the fold of their children's education and life at school. But the idea that we're gonna set up an education system that's going to operate like a nanny state where these children don't even have parents. And John, we see now the spread of community schools. Schools now don't just wanna you know, teach your children, although, as you said, they're not teaching them to read very well, but they want to feed your child, dress your child, give medical services at the school. What does the future of America look like if we are disengaging parents in, the, in, in so many aspects of their children's lives? Well, we'll constantly see that, you know, students will not be able to go off to college and obtain jobs in the science and technology and um, engineering fields, they're not going to be able to meet the standards that are required to even hold basic positions. There are many people who are uh, uh, employers and they own major companies, Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 100 companies. They're saying that many students who uh, graduate from high school, go off to college and even finish in our, uh, in our collegiate education system in America, many of them are grossly uh, underperforming. You know, they're not prepared to hold a job, hold a position. They can't do basic math. Uh, many of them haven't been taught to write properly. <laughs> and so there's so many issues that we're contending with. As we have focused more on social emotional learning and we've moved away from just the basic, basic principles of education, we are seeing that test scores are down, performance is down, morale is down and so we are in a and we are in a troubling place in America and one of the things that's going to really right the ship is school choice we must create competition in education now i'm not for you know taking all of the funding from the public schools you know in north carolina 75% of our students go to the public school system you know and so we that's that's 25% of the uh, the parents and children in, in our state saying that, you know, they want to go the private school route or the homeschooling route. But we do need to make sure that the tax dollars are following the child instead of the district so that parents can have options. If your child is in a failing school system, if your child is in one of the schools that are quite like Chicago, Chicago has 18 schools where none of the students are proficient in reading and math. 18 schools where none of the kids are proficient in reading and math. What does that tell you? Yes, they're getting all of the funding. You know, they're getting all of, all of the support. The tax dollars are there, but they're not doing anything. No one is, no one, no one is being taught. You know, so there has to be a major breakdown educationally there. And so we need to make sure that we have options and that we have choice and that parents can be empowered and use their tax dollars to go to a school of their choice. And what do you say to educators or experts who say that parents don't uh, have the skills required to be able to make decisions about their children's education? Because uh, we we're not the experts. <laughs> well, first and foremost, we don't co-parent with the government, right? That's right. That's right. And, and we don't surrender our rights to the government we're not going to be co-opted by the government as well. And so parents know what's best for their child. Many of these parents have taught their children at home from, the, from, from, from a child up, you know, from an infant up. You know, they know where their child has a bright spot. They know how well they're doing in reading before they go off to the public school system to grade school. They know oftentimes their interest and what they're strong in academically before they go off to grade school. And so these parents are astute. They know what's best. They're in the, they're in the working class. They're able to make a strong decision and a choice on where the child should go to school and what they should be taught. So uh, a good friend from Hillsdale College, Matt Mann, he was talking recently. He wrote a book uh, for children, um, and uh, he was talking about how love is an expertise. And I think that's such an important way of looking at parenting because every parent I do believe loves their child. They don't always know exactly 
what intervention needs to happen to bring their child to the next place as far as learning is concerned. Uh, but they want to work with their child's teacher. And um, I truly believe that every child wants, every, excuse me, pa parent wants what's best for their child ultimately, even if they can't articulate what that is. And even if it doesn't seem like maybe they're making the best choices. Um, right. And so I think we have to kind of do all of the work that we do within education, really keeping that spirit alive of the parent has the fundamental right to direct the upbringing of the child. And we need to respect their role in that and in directing the education, the medical care, and the moral and religious values um, that that child has. So where do you see, as obviously you're, you know, you're a pastor, I, you know, I would imagine, you know, you're raising your children in the, in the, in the church. How do you find a balance? How do you feel that parents can help to find a balance when they, when their religious beliefs or the values and morals that they, they're raising their children with are being infringed upon in the classroom? Um, how to handle those things? Well, I think it's important for parents to understand, especially if they come from a Christian family, that there are three prongs of success. Um, and this is something that I, that I espouse to with my family. Number one is the Christian home, it's the Christian church, and the Christian school. And so with that, there's a three-pronged system of support. And when one is missing, then there's going to be some teetering and rocking back and forth. And so within that, we also keep in mind that the majority of parents may not be in a position where they can pay for uh, private education. So therefore, they have to go to the public school where that, well, that parent has to be engaged and involved from day one. You can't miss a school board meeting. You need to know what's going on, on as it relates to the agenda every month. Most of these school board meetings are held bi-weekly. And so you need to get those updates and read along with a fine-tooth comb and know what's taking place in your public school system. And so with that, they're able to engage and know what's going on, be actively involved, volunteer at your school as much as possible, learn the culture of your school, know who your teachers are, and know what are the, what, what are the teachers that, that are in the school. Be become friendly, you know, really own that school and adopt it, you know, because your child is there. You want to be engaged in the process. And I think what's important also is something that in America we've gotten away from. And that's a simple thing of having dinner at a dinner table and talking about your day. Asking simple questions like what happened today in science class? Or what happened today in math class? What did you like about your school day? What did you dislike about your school day? Was there something that took place that you agreed with? Was there something that took place that you disagreed with? You know, have these questions with your children so that you can really get deep and get under the surface of to the point of what is going on. And oftentimes, if you talk to them, they'll begin to <laughs> regurgitate all of the things that are taking place throughout the course of a day. I think that's wonderful advice and so important right now when we see that so much of the curriculum is online and it mm. changes and you can't always, you, you don't always know what your child is being taught. It's not like, you know, when you and I were growing up and our moms would get worksheets home, right? Or we'd have newsletters home. That's not always happening. And so you're right. You have to be engaged and involved and you have to be willing to ask questions. And I really believe the volunteering in school part is huge because right. I think a lot of this stuff would not be happening if parents were in schools. I think the explosion of a lot of this happening in schools really uh, during COVID happened because parents were locked out of schools. And all of a sudden, um, you know, things started happening and people decided they were going to bring their whole self to work and no one gets to bring their whole self to work. No one gets to, you know, I mean, the idea when I was growing up, I didn't know my teacher's marital status or their political beliefs, um, any of those things. I met a teacher last night who's a second grade teacher. She said she has kids who come back to her classroom after 20 years. They still don't know her, her belief system, her, her religion or her, or her political beliefs or her you know, any, or, or any real, you know, parts about intimate details of her family. Um, but they still have a connection with her because she um, really empowered them to be engaged in their learning and unfolded their full potential. And that's really what matters um, in that classroom with that child. 
Um, but right now, I think that the public education system, John, doesn't really have the goal of teaching our children practicable skills. I think we're seeing evidence every day of a wedge being driven between the parent and the child. You talked about Marxism and communism. Um, and, and I was speaking with a woman uh, who owns uh, a company uh, that does equity work, a consulting company. I met her in the airport. Um, and there are a lot of consultants that are making a lot of money off of our children's education while reading proficiency still stays in the toilet. Uh, and, and no one seems to be concerned about that, right? I will say again, for the hundredth time, literacy is equity. That, that is important. Um, but, you know, her point was, well, you know, there have been horrible things that have happened in the history of this country. And I said, yes, there have been. We, humans do horrible things to other human beings. And she said, well, then we need to have equity in schools in order to counter that. And I said, well, explain what you mean to be by that, because I do believe in equitable access. I believe that if you have schools across a district and you have students at schools that have additional needs, whether that be because they have a disability of some kind or need some type of accommodation, right? Perhaps they have yeah. dyslexia. Perhaps yeah. they have ADHD. Um, perhaps they have Down syndrome, right? Yeah. So you have children who need special accommodations in that manner. Um, but the idea that a child's race or a child's religion is somehow being used as an indicator as to whether or not they can be successful in the classroom is not correct. And, 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 and it's discrimination. Yeah. And so, you know, so if you have a child that's learning English as a second language, yes, you need to give them additional supports and resources because that child needs additional supports and resources. But the idea that you have a black child and a white child in the classroom and somehow there need to be different expectations for those children because of the color of their skin, to me, is probably the biggest crime that we could ever commit when it comes to, to raising our kids together in this country. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's a it's an insult. It's condescending to think that black students can't learn and read and do math at the same rate as white students. You know, that's very condescending for someone to suggest that. You know, after the death of George Floyd, the DIE business ballooned to three point four billion dollars. It is a major industry. Let me tell you something. Race hustling and race baiting pays, Tiffany. It pays big money. That's why you see men like Reverend Al Sharpton and Reverend Jesse Jackson and Ben Crump and some of these professional athletes and the likes, you know, they, they do it because it pays. You know, there, there's a major industry in turning whites against blacks and blacks against whites. There, there is a major, a major business in doing that. And so that's why we need to focus on equality and move away from equity. You know, what we wanted during the civil rights movement, the true civil rights movement, was equal access under the law, you know, and equal rights, equal rights that came from our Constitution. That's what we desired. We were not seeking now to have equitable treatment and, you know, we have to take from another person to give to somebody else in order to level the playing field. There's a graph uh, that's oftentimes used of a family that's looking at a game outside of the arena from um, the, the backside of the fence. And oftentimes they use that to talk about equality and equity. And so really what they're saying is they need to find ways to prop people up so they can look over the fence and support them. They call that equity. But at the end of the day, if they would pay for a ticket to the game, they wouldn't need to sit outside of the baseball match to, to watch the game. And so we are low, lowering expectations in the name of equity. I talk about this in my, my new book, Erased, Uncovering the Lives of Critical Race Theory and Abortion. And I really drive home the point that even many of our, of our colleges and universities today are becoming more and more divided. There was a survey that was done on 173 colleges and universities, and they found out that the majority of them have divided dormitories. You know, you have black dormitories and you have 
LGBTQ dormitories and you have black graduations and you have LGBTQ graduations and all of these different things, you know. So we're becoming more divided than we've ever been. We're not moving in the right direction when it comes to race relations in America. And as we see these gender theory and queer theory books, we're also going to see more of these critical race theory books. They have to find ways to drive a wedge between the American people and keep everybody in this proverbial grievance. So Mm. I went on Dr. Phil to talk about critical race theory. And uh, that was an interesting experience. And they, when you go on Dr. Phil, I've been on twice now, believe it or not. Um, my children thought it was hysterical because all <laughs> kids know about Dr. Phil is that young lady who said that catch me outside thing, right? So they just thought that was so funny. And um, I said, no, I'm going to talk about serious things. Dr. Phil is tackling some serious issues. And he is. He's one of the few people in this country that is tackling some very serious issues. And they said, they always say, if you could ask Dr. Phil one question, what question would you ask him? And my question when I went on for critical race theory was, what does it say to a child, a biracial child, to tell them in a classroom that half of them is good and half of them is bad, that there's original sin that their one of their parents was born with, and it is an original sin that was perpetrated against the other parent, even though those parents love each other, and they have come together in the most special way, which is creating another life together. Right. And I, he didn't get to answer the question, but I ask you this question. <laughs> because I feel like I went to high school in the 90s, we were told that you could marry who you want, love who you want. It was a time when so many of, I mean, and, and, and so many of my friends, so many of the people of our generation did marry people of different faiths and different, and different races and had babies together. And I feel like that's like the most wonderful, that should be, doesn't that show how much progress we've made in this country? But I feel like these kids are trapped in a war that we didn't even know was going to be created for them. Yeah. There's a great deal of vengeance within the framework of critical race theory. Consider Ibram Kendi and what he said. He said the best way to deal with past racism is present racism. You know, but where do you find that in scripture? You know, the Bible tells us not to be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. We're called to love, love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, that's simple. But in critical race theory, there has to be a hatred and an animus towards everyone that is white. And, you know, there are some people who push what we call what we call black liberation theology, where they seek to make a God out of skin tone. You know, I can't make a God out of my blackness, nor can you make a God out of your whiteness. At the end of the day, what unites us is the blood, our blood. You know, the Bible tells us that we are one blood. Christ made of us one blood and we stem from one race. Now, there may be different colors to our pigmentation, you know, but at the end of the day, that doesn't make us greater than the next person. And so what we're seeing is a designed and well-designed plan to bring in Marxism. And it all stems from hatred, vengeance, and grievances, um, pulling the scabs off of wounds and not allowing things to heal because we don't want to go forward. We want to remain in the past. It's even with that notion of colorblindness, you know, and I understand that the, the significance of color being colorblind and and what that framework means, but we need to even move from being colorblind to being color affirming, you know, because if I see a person, I have to recognize that I saw them. And so I don't want to say I'm colorblind in the means of saying that I don't see race or I don't see color, you know, but at the end of the day, I do see color, but I can see your color, Tiffany, and embrace who you are and not bring a prejudice or a bias towards who you are based on some past experience that I had 10 years ago with a white woman in, in Walmart, right? <laughs> I cannot judge you through the lenses of the past 
relationship that I've had with people. You know, I did my first fundraising campaign at the age of 15. I wanted to go to the NC State football camp. And I knew my mother couldn't afford to send me there. She was taking care of four children, making no more than $28,000 a year. And so I came up with a plan. I said, you know what? I'm going to go to about seven businesses down the street from me, and I am going to ask them to write me a check for $250 to go to the NC State football camp. I went to business number one, and I struck out. Business number two, it didn't work. Business number three, they said they couldn't help me. Business number four and five and six, all the way to the point that I got to the seventh business, and I ran into a man by, by the name of Brett Sharp. He owned at the time a company called Jedco Construction. And on this day, I learned the power of not simply having net worth, but having someone in your life that's involved with you who has a net work. And so he didn't write me a check. He said, you know what? I'll do you one better. I'll make a phone call for you. And come to find out, Brett Sharp was on the board of the Wolfpack Club for NC State. And so he made a phone call and said, hey, I have this guy who wants to come to the football camp. Would you make sure that he gets in? And that didn't come from the hands of a black man. That came from the hands of a white man who didn't judge me through a racial bias, who didn't see and didn't look at me and say, no, I don't want to help him because he's black. What he saw was that there was a good young man who wanted to do something good with his life, and I want to help him get to the camp. And guess what? When I graduated from NC State, I went back and thanked him. When I graduated um, from Liberty University, I went back and thanked him. When I got married, I went back and thanked him. After I had my first child, I went back and thanked him. Why? Because thankfulness and humility is the way forward in this country. There's so many people who are stuck in the past. There's so many people who even talk about reparations and making white people pay for the past atrocities that their ancestors went through. Listen, at the end of the day, there's no one who was black who was a slave that's alive today. There's no one that's white who owns slaves that's alive today. And so many of these things we have to let rest so that we can move forward. But there are some people who do not want to let bygones be bygones. They do not want to bring about unity because, as, as I told you early, earlier, the DIE business is a $3.4 billion business. There's so much money to be made in pushing racial tension so people don't want to, want to see it take place. I agree. And, and it's scary for our kids growing up how divided people want them to be. You spoke about critical race theory and, and you said a lens. You know, many people have said, well, it's not being taught in our schools. That's right. Critical race theory, the, the college level course, the graduate level course is not being taught to children in K through 12 schools explicitly. Um, but the way that the children are being taught um, and the expectations that are being set for children and the way that adults and interchildren are interacting has changed because of critical race theory. It has been used to change the way that teaching is happening. So can you just talk about that a little bit for a second for people that are maybe, you know, still wondering or listening and saying, no, critical race theory isn't being taught and John and Tiffany are, you know, crazy people who don't know what they're talking about? Well, people are going to call us crazy regardless because we are true. over the target, right? And so if you speak truth in America, you are crazy, you know, mm -hmm. but um, I had some conversations with some teachers and some school board leaders in the Chatham County area of North Carolina. And before this this past year, um, uh, I believe it was in 20, yeah, 2022, many of the teachers went through a three to four day seminar and training on racial consciousness. And in that training, they had to identify certain areas of their whiteness and white culture and um, the benefits that America has afforded to whites and all of these various different things. And I, 
And many of the teachers are alarmed and they're upset because when they go to school to teach, they're now being forced to talk about gender theory and queer theory and make these things a part of the curriculum and all of this racial consciousness stuff. And so, yes, it is being taught. It's not only being taught in colleges and universities, it has made its way into the public school system. And it's being pushed, whether you want to call it CRT or racial consciousness training or being woke or equity and inclusion and diversity, whatever you want to call it, it is being taught. It is critical race theory at its, at its base um, frame. Um, when you consider critical race theory, you have to go back and move yourself from that and think about critical theory which came from the Frankfurt School of Germany. You know, a gentleman by the name of Karl Marx espoused to this belief of the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. That was the power dynamic. You know, the, the role was to destroy capitalism and push socialism. And so that whole mindset and, and framework is, it is present in our public schools, but you have to be close enough to the school system and be discerning enough to know what is going on. I think it's interesting. I was listening to Kamala Harris the other day. She was talking about um, gender ideology and she was saying, you know, so what does this mean? Are we not going to teach that there's a difference between the sexes and that women don't make as much as men? And I'm sitting there watching saying, how disingenuous does she know that's not what gender ideology is in schools? And, and I think the same way oftentimes when we're talking about issues about diversity, equity, inclusion, or critical race theory, because I think there is a lot of... Um, fear being fomented that we're not teaching honest history or that we don't want honest history taught in America. Um, and I, I always am, you know, kind of taken aback by that. And I think it's important to have honest conversations about it. There was a, um, a post that was put saying that in Florida, um, we weren't teaching about slavery or Jim Crow laws. And I think it was meant to hurt um, Ron DeSantis or to try to make him look like a, a you know, a racist or a bigot, right? And it, nothing could be further from the truth. We actually have very vibrant um, African-American history curriculum standards. And so um, how do we have an, uh, like if, if slavery isn't being taught, if Jim Crow laws, if, if the history of the United States is, isn't being taught accurately, that's a problem. We need mm -hmm. to teach our children in an age-appropriate manner accurate history. And I say age appropriate because um, the American Holocaust Museum talks a little bit about some of their exhibits and, and, and you know, not exposing children that are third grade and under to some of the horrible things that uh, human beings do to other human beings, like the Holocaust, for example, that in the mind of a child, they have a very difficult time coming to an understanding that human beings would do that to each other. It's hard enough for adults to try to um, kind of you know, deal with that, right? And come to an understanding about how adults could hurt other adults. But I do believe that the majority of Americans, I, I, I still look for the racists because I don't know where they are because I've yet to meet someone who says to me, well, I don't want slavery taught about in the United States. I just want to pretend like it didn't happen in public school. Like, I don't want that. So how do we have a really honest conversation? Because if there are moms and dads out there, and I see them on Twitter, who think that Moms for Liberty doesn't want the real history of the United States taught, um, that's just a lie. And, and so how do we have honest conversations about, and, and like in local communities, right? Not at a national level, but in Wake County or in Chatham County or wherever, about what's really being taught in schools to ensure that people feel good and and comfortable with the fact that accurate history is being taught. And if it isn't, you know, let's call it out, right? I mean. Yeah, you know, I'll tackle this question in, in a different way. So just, okay. just, just bear with me. <laughs> Why aren't white liberals upset about critical race theory? What comes to mind? I don't know. Are they are they part of the three point four billion dollars that are making money off of the fomenting of division? Is that you the know, answer? That that is one of the main points of, of of the answer. And so they capitalize off of it. You know, Robin DiAngelo in her book on um, white guilt. You know, because even when you talk about white guilt, just 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 think about that. White guilt. So whites have to apologize and feel sorry 
that God made them white. I mean, let that sink in. What, what did you do to win the lottery that God made you white, Tiffany? What did you do? Was it your choice? Did you roll a spiritual dice in your mother's womb, <laughs> you know, and say, hey, God, make me white, you know? Did I roll a spiritual dice and say, Lord, make me black, you know? Because at the end of the day, if you have to feel white guilt because you're, you're white, then that means that I should feel black shame because I'm black. See, white guilt robs blackness of their existence. Because if you have to feel pitiful and have to go around apologizing and you have to become the proverbial sacrifice for slavery, you have to atone for it. Because, of, because you are white. Man, that is crazy. And black people in America, many black people, uh, Tiffany, hear me and hear me clear. They don't buy into that stuff. They think it's foolish. You know, they may find some particular nuts who are okay with pushing this stuff and they sign off on it because they're getting paid, right? But many blacks are going about their day trying to work hard just like whites. They're not getting into this whole rabbit hole ch uh, chase and um, getting into the weeds of chasing all of the racial issues that are out there and that are being fabricated by many people, especially during election cycles. I think that's why they try to say everything they do about Moms for Liberty. I think they don't want black moms and dads to be members with us. I think if they know... Yeah that if we're able to bring parents together across racial lines, across religious lines, right, across all the ways they want us divided, if we right. can bring parents together to fight for our children, that we are so powerful and have such a compelling message that they, they won't be able to control us. And I think that's really what it's about. That, that is the point. Listen, someone told me um, a, a couple of days ago, they said, you know what, John? Nationally speaking, with all of your viral school board messages, I've had five or maybe six viral school board messages in the past um, seven months, okay? And what I see after these viral, viral videos are released, I see numerous Black people reaching out to me saying, hey, brother, we agree with you. Yeah. What you're saying makes sense, you know, and they're, they're going to find ways to, to tar and feather moms for liberty. But listen, you all are doing a great work. I know what I stand for. You know, you, you, you're having a conference this uh, coming up around the corner in yeah. Philadelphia. You know, continue to bring in black voices and prominent black voices that can help you uh, and strengthen the mission of what you are doing continually. I work with Moms for Liberty in Wake County. You know, I did a fundraiser with uh, the, the the head person over the chapter, uh, Julie. Julie, Julie. yeah, you know, Julie's great. Yeah, yeah, she's she's phenomenal. I did a fundraiser for them, and I told them, listen, this is how, this is how we're going to do it. All of the money goes to Moms for Liberty and whatever people pay me for my book, I will take. And I was the keynote speaker. And listen, I, I travel the country speaking and people pay me quite well to, to, to speak, but I want it to be a blessing towards Moms for Liberty. I've worked with Moms for Liberty in Chatham County. The first school board meeting that I did was alongside Amy Kappelman in, in Chatham, <laughs> you know, and so Moms for Liberty is everywhere. And I'm having people reach out to me saying, hey, how do I find out what's going on in the public school system? The first thing that comes to mind is Moms for <laughs> Liberty. So you, you need to find a way to uh, bring uh, Reverend John Amanchukwu into the mom, into the Moms for Liberty, maybe the Dads for Liberty. <laughs> All over the country. All over the country. No, but you're right. And I think one of the things that you brought up before that was so important, again, go volunteer in schools. Find yeah. a way to be a mentor. I think what you talked about, net worth versus network, I think the whole network idea that the fact, you know, schools can't do it alone. I don't want community schools. I don't want the government expanding their role in the lives of the parent and the child. I think we need right. to be strengthening the life 
and the relationship between the parent and the child. I believe in limited government. Um, so, I, but I, but I do believe that communities like churches and other groups can come together to help to support um, children and families in the community, as you said, and as you've done in your life. If you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering how you can get involved, if you don't have kids in school, you can be a mentor. Being a mentor, going through Big Brothers and Big Sisters, I set up a, a, an, um, a partnership in my uh, school district when I was a school board member called Rise Up, and it was reaching individual students every day. And it was just a wonderful way for people to be able to come into the school, to work with a child one-on-one, to build that relationship, and to take some of the skills and gifts that they have in their life or the business that they've been able to create and to invest in the child and to say, let me use my network to help you, right? Let me see how we can work together to help each other. And I just think that adult, this is an adult thing. Adults are supposed to protect children and it doesn't matter what you look like or how you were raised. You have the ability to make a difference in a child's life. And we should all want to do that for each other and for each other's children. So I just am so thankful that you came on the show today, John, and spoke to us. Um, It it was such a blessing to meet you, uh, I think two years ago now in New Jersey, um, at a seat at the table, uh, doing some amazing work. You were speaking there. And so now to continue to be on this journey with you and to help bring parents together, um, it's just wonderful. So thank you again for joining us. Any parting words uh, for the Moms for Liberty crew or for parents who are listening? Hey, go get a copy of my book, Erased. It's E-R-A-C, not an S, but C-E-D. Uh, you can go to Erased book.com e-r-a-c-e-d book.com and get a copy of my book and you can support the erased project as well i'm traveling to school boards around the country the lord has blessed blessed me with a gift to be able to deliver high octane and eye popping um, messages and speeches and so i may be coming to a school board near you i have hundreds of parents reaching out to me around the country trying to bring me to texas to california to Tennessee, to New Jersey, even to Alaska, all right? And so I want to get there, but I need your support to do so. So go to erasedbook.com to support me in doing so. And follow me on social media at RevWooTruth. That's R-E-V-W-U Truth. Listen, Moms for Liberty is doing a great work. And much of the things that they say, I say the same thing. They're not crazy. They just have common sense. So continue to support Moms for Liberty. Thank you, John. We appreciate your time today. Keep up the great work and we'll keep working together.